Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is your host, Ryan Tansom, and this is episode 265. And today, my guest name is Karen Lane. She is a mom, lawyer, renovator, boss, HGTV's Good Bones co-star, and she's going to be sharing tips on transitions, business planning, and what it was like to take a back seat as her daughter Mina took the business to the next level and all the uh, all the successes and challenges that came with it. If you're not familiar with Karen, she practiced law both as a prosecutor and criminal defense attorney beginning in the 90s, and then in 2007, her and her daughter Mina began rehabilitating neighborhoods in Indianapolis one house at a time. And after working on about two to four houses per year from 2007 to 2014, they were approached by High Noon Entertainment, which is the same production company who made Fixer Upper. And after a Skype interview, which involves some wine, uh, sizzle and a pilot, HGTV ordered a season of Good Bones. Season six will premiere June 29th, 2021. And production of season seven is ongoing. And Karen is known on the show for turning trash into treasure, landscaping, and having a laugh that you either love or hate. And she is one hell of a sense of humor. I'm super excited for, for the interview. And the reason why I'm so excited for everybody to tune in is because if you've worked in a family business where there's multiple generations, there's so many challenges that come with it. You have different hats from friends, most likely business partners, mentor, mentee. You've got uh, just so many things going on. And when you're growing a business and you're trying to align that future vision of the company, so many times different people, different generations have different visions. You have to align the long-term vision with the eventual transition from the day-to-day, as well as the family buyouts and how the money is going to be flown, especially if there's other siblings involved. There's just so much that goes into that blender. And Karen is an absolute blast to talk to because she is extremely vulnerable. And she, she you can tell that she was an attorney because she's very articulate and very open with the challenge that her and Mina dealt with. And it's all based in love, but she's open to share the challenges that come with it. So if you're interested in understanding how she went about doing her transition and taking a backseat, as well as all the things that they went through, you got to tune in. And what I really enjoy is that, you know, a lot of us struggle with these kind of challenges, but they're, you know, in closed rooms or they're at our houses at home. You know, the fact that Karen and Mina are literally in the limelight and they're sitting there in front of all these people having to deal with this potential uh, transition in front of everybody. I just love how great she articulates how they went through it and what they're doing now. So I think that this is a must listen to, and I, it's, there's a lot of laughs in it and there's a, <laughs> it's just totally worth it. So thanks everybody for tuning in. And so without further ado, here's my interview with Karen. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Karen, how are you? Good morning, I'm great, how are you? I am good. And I think just for the fun of it, I want you to explain what you were doing and why you said it's a good morning, because uh, it's just going to kick off the whole conversation right where it should. This morning, I got to drive to Osgood, Indiana to hang out with some of my favorite artisans. They are, the company's called Iron Timbers, and it's a father and two sons. Gary's the dad, Dustin and Caleb are the sons, and they make things, as you might guess from the name, out of metal and wood. And their artistry is unbelievable. In fact, they made the door you see behind me because the only quiet place in the shop is the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I just love it. You just roll with the punches. And uh, and I think for the listeners, whether they're familiar with your shows and what you guys have been doing or not, but we'll, we'll get to that. But 
bring us back because you were pushing paper and signing documents and redlining before you were uh, doing the stuff that you have with hammers. So why don't you just bridge the gap for us? <laughs> so I started out my career, well, not really. Lawyer was after mom. So I was a mom and then I went to law school, became a lawyer. So diapers, then, then yes, paperwork. right. And it kind of prepares you because what you find in the diapers is a lot of what you find in legal cases. It's the same. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, I started in civil and I did not really like the flavor of civil. And I went to the locally elected prosecutor and asked, can I work for you? And he said, yes. I don't know why he said yes. There was no good reason for that. So as a deputy prosecutor for something like 14 or 15 years uh, in two different chunks of time, 10 years and then five years. And in between, I was a criminal defense attorney. So litigators are a special kind of attorneys. And I think some of us become litigators because we don't like paper. There's much, I don't want to read a contract. I'm not interested. It's not my thing. I just want to argue. <laughs> I, do want to, I do want to get to know a jury and pick a good jury who will listen to the story that is told from the witness stand and then make a reasonable decision. I like doing that. So the, uh, which I find so interesting. I mean, you said stories too. And just so uh, side note, I've got this uh, friend of mine who is like this master storyteller and he actually helps litigators build their, but essentially their 15 to 20 minute TED talk without all of the garbage and the lingo. He's like, no, well, these are real people with real minds and we need to tell a story so they can actually understand what the heck you're talking about. Right. And, and stories can be true. People think when you say story that you're talking about made up stories, but they can also be made up. So no, you, and I feel like that's crucial. And I don't know why lawyers talk in legalese to juries. It's just counterproductive. They end up not liking you and having to work past that to be fair to your client, which is not what you want as a lawyer. You want the jury to like you and not have to work past you to like your client. So and as we jump into your story, I'm, I think that, that that's an interesting bridge because for the listeners that aren't familiar with uh, what you just retired from in the recent past, why don't you give us an explanation of what you and your daughter were, how, how did you start the journey of rehab? And then you ended up on TV with all these followers. <laughs> so like, you know, give us some of the milestones and then we can kind of go into the meat of it. So like most of my life, so becoming a lawyer was actually just random. It's a whole long story that you want to hear, but getting a TV show was kind of random too. So when my daughter, my older daughter graduated from college, she wanted to do something grown up but she didn't want to get a nine to five job where she had to dress in a pencil skirt. So she bought a house and she was making good money in fine dining as a server. She made good money. Uh, she probably made almost as much as I did as a lawyer. It's pretty impressive. Interesting. Yeah. You get, if you're a good server in fine dining, you get tipped really well and mm. your hours are limited because fine dining is dinner. So, uh, so she bought a house in uh, what we call a transitional neighborhood which means there's open air drug dealing going on 24 hours a day across the street. Uh, as a former deputy prosecutor and a foreign defense attorney, former defense attorney, I was like, those people are not my problem because that's not, that's not my, they're mm -hmm. not my problem. They're the police's problem, but as long as, and they were great security. If we made friends with them. If we were having people just, over. So you, you weren't upset as a mom? No, no. If they were having people over, they're just businessmen doing illegal business. They're, they are not going to hurt us because we're not dealing drugs. We're not competition. They don't care about us. But go bring them a plate, uh, rescue their dogs when they go to jail, and <laughs> they are going to make sure nothing happens to us. Like, we're the little white oh girls in the neighborhood that they like. So anyway, <laughs> she bought the house, we rehabbed the house, and we had so much fun doing it. We thought we should do this again. So we did. And we had fun the second time, so we should do this again. So we did. And the third time, Mina said, I think we have a business. And we did. So she created a logo. And this is funny. Our first logo was slightly pornographic. And we didn't know it. Because we're Two Chicks and Hammer. <laughs> Mina came up with the name Two Chicks and Hammer because that's fun. We don't take ourselves seriously. Yeah, yeah that's what great. What we do is important, but we are not. And so there was one little chick. And then a reverse little chick and then a hammer in the middle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and my oldest son had to point out to us, that's a little pornographic. Tell me, did you have any cards or any, or was this just like in the draft mode? It was on the business cards. It was on the hoodies. <laughs> it was on everything. I still, I should have awesome. worn the hoodie. 
You got to frame something like that. Yeah. I still have the uh, original hoodie with the chicks on the back just to remind me <laughs> exactly how stupid I am. And you oh, think that would awesome. not have been lost on me. I prosecuted sex offenders and defended sex offenders for years. So <laughs> you think, but no. So uh, after we got the business and we had a little Facebook page for Two Chicks and a Hammer. And I think it was 2013, Mina got a phone call and she calls me up and says, I think this lady's trying to steal my identity. And I said, did she ask for your bank routing number or your social security number? And Mina said, no, I said, she's not stealing your identity. You're fine. And then the lady did, and this is a lady named Tina Seiler and she works at High Noon Entertainment, which is a production company that makes Fixer Upper. And she did a Skype interview with us. And what's funny is Mina had a rough day. It's like four o'clock that we're doing this interview and Mina rolls in at 4.01, uncorks a bottle of wine and during the one hour Skype interview, finishes the bottle. And I did have a few drinks. Like I had a few sips out of her glass to, you know, she can't drink alone, but apparently she's more fun and more interesting during a bottle of wine. So after the phone call, Tina said, I'm just checking things out. You'll probably never hear from me again. And after the Skype interview, Tina said, I'm just checking things out. You'll probably never hear from me again. And then we did hear from them again. They sent us some flip cams and said, we're going to make a sizzle. And so you film what you do and we'll edit it and send it to HGTV. But nothing's ever going to come of this. So we did the sizzle. They sent it to HGTV. And I wish I had a copy of it because it's really amazing. It's just a beautiful six minutes of making the world a better place one house at a time. It's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. And then they say, yeah, we like the sizzle. Let's make a pilot. But don't get excited because we make lots of pilots and nothing ever comes out of most of them, like one in a million. So we make the pilot and we made that pilot in 32 days. We demolished and rehabbed a house in 32 days. I was reading the, one of the press releases on that and actually about the line. And when you, when it started talking about lining up your guys's TV show with the actual construction projects, I'm like, that's some serious pressure because it's not like you're just like, you know, doing takes in someone's backyard or some studio. It's like, no, no, there's an actual project that has to go along to completion along with the TV show. <laughs> yeah. So you're basically doing two jobs because construction is a full time job. And the way Two Chicks and a Hammer does it is they find the houses, they buy the houses, they rehab the houses, and then they sell the houses. So there's this whole long process that's involved. And TV doesn't really watch the buying part. They just watch the rehab part. They don't Mm -hmm. really watch the selling part. They see us show the house to a potential buyer. And and I'm going to break it to you that not all the potential buyers are actually potential buyers. TV isn't always real. Sometimes it's some nice person who agreed to pretend to be a potential buyer. All of the reactions that you see are their real reactions. And most of the time, these sort of fake buyers want to buy the house. They see the house oh, and like, this is amazing. I don't, I don't need to buy a house, but can I buy this house? <laughs> Which is really <laughs> cute and very complimentary. So after the sizzle and the pilot, they called us and said, we're going to give you a season. Uh, don't get excited. There's not going to be a season two. Nobody gets a season two, but we're going to give you a shot for a season. Man, they were just setting your expectations from day one, weren't they? Exactly. And so <laughs> we're filming season seven and I still don't think we have a TV show. I just don't. <laughs> I'll be out in public and someone will say, hey, Karen. And I'll say, I don't remember where I know you from. You don't know me. I know you from TV. Oh, that's right. I have a TV show. Oh, that's right. I've got a TV show. (laughs) Oh, that's it. So there's a lot of different ways we can take this because you guys had so much you know, PR and the people have, have got an experience with you. And one of the reasons that when you and I had chatted on the prep call is that, you know, you retired it's going to be coming up on two years now pretty soon. And I just found it so interesting. And so I'll maybe kind of just set some context and we can go any different direction is that I thought it was really interesting because I worked with my dad and you and I were talking about family businesses and, you know, as the business you know grows from zero to something and I didn't start it with him. So that's a little bit different, but the experience of as people are growing, visions change and you guys were in the limelight. So we at least were having some arguments and, uh, and different discussions behind the doors that weren't on TV. But like, I, you know, wanted to kind of walk through the process of what it's like taking something that you guys have built together and had visions on and how that, that whole handing off the torch was. And 
you know, but before we mes- necessarily have to go into that, uh, that part of the story, which we can, we can, if you want, but why you guys were rehabbing and why you decided to do that instead of being a, a defense attorney, because I think the why is so important, Karen, because it lends so much insight into the discussions of when eventually you're trying to do something else, how, how impactful that it could be. From the very start, my idea was to make neighborhoods better one house at a time. I wanted to stay in my neighborhood that I loved, that I saw need. I saw all of these houses that were vacant or empty lots that were full of trash. And I knew that if we could fill those houses with people, if we could make the houses better so someone could live in them, our neighborhood would be better. And so we started in our neighborhood. And Mina was 100% on board with this idea because when you're working in your own neighborhood, you know your neighbors, your ears to the ground, and you find out, oh, who owns this house? And how can I get hold of that person? And how do I buy this house? And, and so you have an advantage over mm-hmm. a, an institutional investor who lives in California who doesn't even know that this house is sitting there needing rehabilitation. So true. And so I think in that way, and also... Mina's not as much like this as I am. Mina got on board with the let's make the world a better place because we can also make money doing that. We, we can, <laughs> I was going to say, she was, a, she was a server making a lot of money too. She is more motivated by the financial aspect, which is really important when you're in a partnership with someone like me who's more motivated by the emotional aspect. Because she'll tell you, like if I were on my own, I would not give houses away. But because I have her to balance me, I can say, oh, you like this house? You just want it? But she's not going to let that happen. Because <laughs> she's going to protect you. <laughs> yeah. So I would have to expand my personality characteristics and damp down some of those you know, dreamer characteristics. And I don't have to do that because she's much more the business side. And mm-hmm. she doesn't have to be the crazy dreamer person. She can just stick with the numbers, which is something mm-hmm. that is more her skill set. So mm-hmm. if, but now without me, she's got other people who have crazy things to say. <laughs> <laughs> Give it, they're giving house, other people trying to give houses away. Well, it, and what I think is so interesting about what you said too, Karen, is that, you know, a lot of times that it, this happened multiple times to me and a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs that I see that are founders, that they have this vision of, you know, wanting to make the world a better place or your neighborhood one house at a time. And then there's all of a sudden a business that kind of comes after it. And so there's this vision and, and some sort of combination of money impact and, you know, enjoyment. There's kind of a couple of things that need to be happening, but then all of a sudden there's this thing that happens. That's this business where now we have to figure out how to keep itself sustaining while being true to our mission. Did you guys have it? How did you have that discussion at the beginning? And then were there periods of time where you had to kind of recalibrate to say, okay, well, are we on track to what we want to be accomplishing? I don't think now that we're in season seven and I look back at season one, for me, there was no change. For Mina in season one, so we did two to four houses a year. We did, I think, 27 houses before TV came along. Wow. And we just used our own money. We never borrowed money. We might put something on a credit card, but not more than we could. We knew we could pay. And so that's just how we did it. But when TV came along, now they want us to do 13 episodes and to buy 13 houses and put the money that we needed over a million dollars. And I honestly don't know how she did it. I I, I don't. I mean, we got some family members who were investors. She planned the timing so that the first houses we did would sell, hopefully, and they did, (laughs) so that then we can pay for the last houses And there was just a lot of financial magic that she Mm -hmm. made happen that I I don't think I could have done. That's her skill set. I don't have lots of friends with money who will just lend it to me. It's not not how I live. I hung Mm -hmm. out with felons, you know, (laughs) not going to lend you money. (laughs) You know, taking their dogs for walks. (laughs) So that was the big challenge when TV started was money. Staying true to our mission was easy because there were lots of houses that needed love to improve a neighborhood. As we've gone further along, there have been some projects where we did outside of our neighborhood. We're doing a project for season seven that's a million something dollar house. 
That's not my kind of house. I'm not making a neighborhood better by doing that, but it is an interesting project. It's interesting to see, well, basically to see how the other half lives. Cause I do not live in a million something dollar house. <laughs> I bought my house for $45,000. <laughs> oh, and I'm sure it's beautiful with all the things that you guys do there. And, and what I find interesting about those dynamics is did you guys ever have any like push and pull of like, how do you pick the projects? Are we going to make money? Like what was the balance back and forth on how you guys there, I think there was a lot of trust, and I think Mina and I both know our skill set. So Mina is always out there. Well, and I had my share of properties that I saw and said, we should buy this. And our philosophy has always been, if we can buy it at the right price and it's in our neighborhood, there's nothing we can't fix because mm. these houses are so wretched. It's not a question of, oh, can we afford to spend $25,000 to renovate the kitchen? That's not what we're doing. We're rebuilding mm-hmm. an entire house and we're looking at spending $200,000 a house. That's what's happening. So we can't buy the house for $200,000 because then we're not a neighborhood where we can make the money. And those mm-hmm. metrics are easy to know. Easy. Like, you know, I got 200 or six years ago, it would have been $180,000 in this house. If I spend $5,000 on the house, I can make money. So that's mm-hmm. your all in price of five thousand. And Mina has that chapter and verse. And I'm pretty good at guessing it because I've been doing it for so long. But now that I'm mm-hmm. retired, I don't even worry about it. So I don't even try to guess anymore. Um, <laughs> you just, you get a real feel for, well, this one has foundation problems and that's going to be $20,000 above and beyond what we would ordinarily spend. And that's a rough estimate. That's not the exact number. But mm-hmm. all of your numbers when you buy are rough estimates and they're going to work themselves out. What was the question? Well, no, no, that's, it's, it's good. Cause like, I, it's the money and the balancing of the, uh, of the vision. Cause like I, so in the, I'll give you uh, some context behind it. So like, I've seen it where like, you know, well, in my old business it was like, okay, I want to, for example, we were, our industry was changing. So it was a copier business and then it was getting into it and technology and my dad's passion for that as the industry was changing and things were changing. And it was like, okay, how do we continue to align our vision while also continuing to make money? And so you're, there's kind of this push and pull. And I don't know if it, like along the way, you know, how aligned was your vision along the way? And did you ever have any like push and pull between, okay, well, there's some good money in this one, but it might not align with what we're trying to accomplish as much or vice versa. I don't think that's the misalignment we ran into. Um, in real estate, working in a single neighborhood, you create your own comps. So if we do six houses on a block, the first one might be a loss leader. But then the next one, we use that and, and we build our own comps. So Brilliant. even from a financial standpoint, the process makes sense. So here mm-hmm. I am making neighborhoods better because I feel good about it. But for me, now making neighborhoods better makes financial sense also. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. no misalignment there. It, it came down to much smaller things that we became misaligned on. You know, how do we hire new employees? How, how do we spend the money we have today? Do we pay this vendor? How can we be more proactive and have more money in the bank so we're not always running, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and doing Mm -hmm. all this financial? And it's just hard because TV has a timeline. And if it were just the two of us, there'd be no rush, right? We don't have to push to sell this house at a discount so that we can do the next house. We can just let the house sit on the market as long as it needs to. And as a real termino looks at it and goes, oh, it's been on 30 days. We need to knock down the price or whatever. But there's no time pressure to get the house done. <laughs> to start the next episode. <laughs> exactly. And we wouldn't have to do 13 houses. So she's still faced with that challenge. And that's where the only real misalignment has come is the time pressure and the money pressure from TV. It's super interesting, Karen, because like um, that is you're you're absolutely right. That is a factor that most family businesses absolutely do not have, which actually I find it really interesting is that it's really, it, it's actually a potentially a bad thing because people do nothing instead. So they don't have the hard conversations. They don't have anybody outside saying, Hey, by the way, you guys should talk about this because you're not aligned. So it's the, it's a completely, the pendulum goes the other direction. And Mina and I had a business philosophy at the very beginning where if we don't agree, we don't do it. Like we are mm. going to have those hard conversations 
and we are going to step back from them and take a break and come back at them. And we are going to keep working on it until we find where our uh, interests align or overlap and then hit that sweet spot. And then there came a time where I think Mina got pressured by the financials to move faster. And so we didn't have that time to make those decisions anymore. Or she decided she couldn't take the time. You know, I don't, I don't know. I can't speak for her, but I know that wasn't happening. I know decisions mm-hmm. were getting made that I didn't agree with, that we hadn't had the conversation. I'm like, we need to look at this again and look at it differently. And the answer would be, we don't have time. And that may have just been an excuse to win an argument. I'm not sure. Admitting it or admitting that there might be a possibility is is the first step. Karen, what did you guys do to communicate well? You know, as in like, you know, we had this one consultant that came in and said, hey, Corey and Ryan, by the way, your best friends, your father, son, your employer, employee, your like all these, all these different things combined. And it was very difficult understanding what hat we were wearing. Um, so I'm curious, like when, how was there things, how was the communication and systems between you two? Now with Mina, I never developed that differentiation. We, we would be out doing something fun and I would call for a meeting. I'd say, we need to have a three minute meeting about business. And then we'd go back to doing the fun thing, but there was no, there was no transition in thought process. Like if we'd had a glass of wine, that three minute meeting was a glass of wine meeting, right? That's what happened. (laughs) With my yeah. youngest daughter, we say out loud, okay, business, because mm. she worked for the business for years. And I would say, this is a business issue. And then at some point in the day, something might happen. I'd say, can we switch to personal mode for five minutes? And we would change our hats and we would change our way of communicating and the depth of communicating and even the location of the communication. This is personal. We're going to go mm-hmm. somewhere else and have this personal conversation. And that just never happened with Mina and I. It just It didn't. I think we had gotten so used to our way of communicating, which is very mm-hmm. rough and tumble. Like people would see us just having a conversation and say, why are you fighting? And we would think <laughs> we're not fighting. We're just talking. And we, maybe we need some therapy. Cause I honestly, I think therapy would help us with that to recognize when we need to shift because it can be done. I've learned how to do it. And it's very effective to be able to put on a different hat. Like I have the mom hat on right now. I have the business partner hat on right now mm-hmm. and maybe mm-hmm. physically different hats, right? <laughs> exactly. Purple, orange, yellow, red. <laughs> it has feathers and a little, yeah. <laughs> and the, and the business hat is like a seed cap with the two chicks logo. So that's how, you know, business right now. The old, old one or new one. I gotta get, I gotta ask now. <laughs> oh, you know what? I'm not a logo girl. I don't wear any of the two chicks stuff because I don't wear anybody's logos. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. That's awesome. So the when you guys set up the business, it, was it 50-50 partnership on the ownership and then the salaries? And the, the again, some context behind this, Karen, is that <laughs> along with the- Salary. Own- <laughs> you said salary. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> yeah. So were you guys both, uh, uh, were you both serving tables while you were flipping houses? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was still working as a lawyer and Mina was still working as a fine dining server and we did this part-time, and when we had money, we spent it on the business. And when we sold a house, we gave ourselves a little something, and we rolled the money back into the next house because we wanted to grow the business. And my older son, who is a, a financial engineer, they don't even know what they do. And I'm not certain that's exactly his degree. I think his degree is industrial engineering, but he is a financial engineer. And he talked to us many times about how to grow the business. And we just didn't listen. Like we had really good advice. And then the show put us in this position where we had to grow the business. We didn't have a choice. So a lesson for me is I didn't, I guess I didn't need to grow the business. I was happy mm-hmm. with it, the size it was. And he saw this amazing opportunity for two powerful, competent women to really put their mark in the world. And I think Mina felt more attracted to that than I did just cause I don't know. Well, and, and it's, it's, you know, whether it's, it's interesting kind of just having this conversation where, you know, I've, I see it where like, so uh, what happened with my dad and I, or I watched the other businesses where 
either visions start to kind of decouple a little bit and or the financial desire to do certain things changes. So like, you know, whether it's retirement or like, you know, again, different ages, like my business partner is almost twice my age and he has more money than me because just the natural earning and wealth creation. So he's, I mean, potentially we could be misaligned with how we want to grow the business. And so like, there's this, I want to pull more money out because I don't need to. I want to have this nice balance between financial reward and enjoyment. Whereas in, if you're younger, you kind of want to pile it in so you can grow more wealth. I mean, did you guys see some of those dynamics going on? Yes, absolutely. And I think one of the really important things if you're in a partnership is to have those conversations at the outset. Before you mm-hmm. join a partnership, figure out how you're going to wind down the partnership. So those rules are set in stone. So when it's time to wind down, you've already all agreed on that. And there's no argument and there's no issue. Um, And we started out 50-50. There was a point in time where she was doing more before the show started. And I tried to do it 80-20, but that didn't feel right or fair. Because what I bring is this vast intellectual property that she doesn't have. I I bring the ability to go to court if we need to, to deal with liens if we need to. And and Mm -hmm. I had this 30 years of experience that she just doesn't have because she was born 30 years later than I was. Right, and and right. there's a value to that that isn't reflected in the amount of time you spend on the job because mm-hmm. that knowledge that I gained that took 30 years to gain that I can now spit out in 10 seconds, what <laughs> you need to value is the 30 years it took me to gain that. And I think she started looking at it as, you know, it's just how many hours you put in in a day. That's what matters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I couldn't look at it that way. That's that's not how I looked at it because I can do things more efficiently because of this knowledge I have than you can. And we shouldn't be doing physical labor. We should be hiring people to do physical labor because it's not efficient for us to do it. Mm-hmm. How'd you guys reconcile that? Because I, I totally agree on that. And going back when you started laughing, because <laughs> uh, and I love the reason you laughed about the salary versus ownership. But what what I was what I was getting at is there's this concept of ownership where like you have this financial asset, and when you're in real estate in the business, I mean it's more of a tangible asset where business itself is also worth something. And then you've got your jobs where you get a check for. And so like going back to your 80, 20, 50, 50. How did you guys reconcile this thing that is usually very, very muddy with family businesses? TV came along and gave us a salary. So the issue of money from the business was completely unimportant because we weren't going to make any money from the business because it was all going to go back into the business. Mm-hmm. And so it became an irrelevant issue. Uh, if TV hadn't come along, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, well, you know what would have happened is eventually I would have said, I want to retire, buy me out. And we would have had a decade long fight about what the business is worth. <laughs> and Which is why I have a podcast. That is about sums it up. <laughs> it would have been a really long fight because they gave me all the financials and I'm looking at the financials saying, oh, the business is worth this. But wait a minute, I'm missing this information. I need this other information to be able to make an estimate of the value of the business. And there is mm-hmm. goodwill value to the business that exists. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to value that. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to go with the numbers. And that was one thing we did agree on that if one of us left, it wasn't about goodwill value because we both agreed that's just too hard. It's too hard. Right. Nobody can right. figure that out and we don't want to. So we did find. Oh, like- and especially with like, you have a brand, you have a public brand too, that like, you know, cause there's a lot of these other companies that can say, well, we got goodwill, which there is truth to the goodwill in their, in their logo, their brand. But like, you have a visible one that you could like literally argue about. So when you said that you, you know, you think that everybody should do that on the onset, did you guys do that? Or is that now kind of looking back saying that that's what should, yeah, everybody we, should be doing? We did have an agreement about winding down that if someone wanted to leave, that we would not value the goodwill, that it would just be the numbers, what the business was actually worth in money. We did agree on mm-hmm. that. That's not a very robust agreement. That doesn't really help you. It would have been mm-hmm. nicer if we had said, and this is how we're going to value the business. We're going to look at this financial. We're going to look at this financial. We're going to add these six things or whatever, whatever we agreed on. There was so much going on and we could just never get there. Mm-hmm. And I think, so I think part of it was is the different personalities. I saw my value as intellectual property. And Mina saw her value as, you know, time property. Like I'm spending this time. And she thought time in the game 
was more valuable than the intellectual property. And I didn't. So we're just at an mm -hmm. impasse. And if we talked to some family members who hated us for it, <laughs> we needed professional <laughs> help. But we did end up reaching an agreement because I think she got to the point where it was worth more to her to get rid of me because she was tired of arguing with me because we have arguments all the time about everything. And I think she just got to a point where she didn't want to do that anymore. Pay mom the money, get her out of here, have a happy life. I think that's what happened. Well, what was the, uh, because it sounds like your, your relationship very similar to some of the relationships I have where like you just, you just brawl it out and then you just move on. What, at what point were you not, were there any topics or any times that were is like, I just don't know if we can move on for this because it's lingering longer than it should. Yes, still. <laughs> and they're difficult topics. But as far as business goes, and that's the problem with doing business with family is it's not just business. It's not. All the family stuff gets brought into the business. And so things that don't belong in the business become emotional triggers for business decisions. And I think there was some of that. I think there was some of that because I never learned the skill with Mina of putting on different hats. Like we were never able to do that together like I did with my youngest. For me, I believe my retirement and how I was bought out resolved all my issues. But I don't know if I could say that for Mina. I don't know if she feels that way. She might not feel like how I retired was fair to her, but I don't know. Isn't, um, are you, are you guys, I mean, you're still working together. So, I mean, are things to the, because it's, is it, is it just a normal amount of conflict that you guys, like, that's how it's operating at? And cause, and I, and I say that with all sincerity, sincerity, because I can relate to that dynamic wholeheartedly. So the way I manage conflict that I can't figure out a way to resolve is I withdraw. I just withdraw from the conflict. I, I don't, and that isn't always healthy because it mm -hmm. would be better to resolve it. But there are certain things that I have tried to resolve and I have been unsuccessful. And at a certain point in time, I have to recognize I'm beating my head, self, my head against a wall here. And the only person I'm hurting is myself. So I need to just withdraw from this conflict and whatever the win is that the other person perceives, let them have it. What, whatever they think this is, that doesn't mean that... Uh, I have resolved the issue that created the conflict. Like I still feel like whatever that thing was should have been done this other way, mm -hmm. but move on. Life's too short. Let that go. It's well, never going my way. Move on. Well, it's an interesting dynamic or interesting choice or trade-off because, you know, if you don't resolve it, resentment could build up slowly. And I can't even imagine like, I mean, your practice as a defense attorney and litigator, right? So like, like, I mean, I'm assuming your daughter grew up knowing that. So like, was there, there probably was some built in, like, here's how we discuss because this is how I operate and this is my default mode. Yeah. My, my conflict resolution style is very structured. I'm also a trained mediator. So I have oh. more than <laughs> one quiver in my, no, more than one arrow in my quiver. Yeah. And my first my first step is not always fight. What I've learned to do is, hey, where's our common ground? Where are we in agreement? Where and so define the scope of the problem to begin with. And then what process are we going to use to work through this problem? Are we going to have face-to-face -face meetings? Do we have graphs and charts? What are we going to do? Are we going to bring in other people to help us solve it? So that's my approach. It's very structured because of my mediation mm -hmm. training and my litigation training. And Mina is more, I like to call her my juggernaut. You know what a juggernaut is? There's a comic book character oh, I, called Juggernaut, and he just put his head down yeah, and he ran through buildings. So a Juggernaut <laughs> is an unstoppable force. And that has served Mina well in what we do, because we wouldn't be where we are if she weren't a Juggernaut. But I also I recognize that that is not productive to try and convince a Juggernaut not to run through the building. Right? It's just not going to work. <laughs> That's what she is. Oh, so many visuals going on right now. I love it. Can, can I get a, a fire hose to move her one direction? I, you know, what am I going to use to sort of change the angle of this attack in a way that's more beneficial for me, for the business, for her, mm -hmm. for whatever. So did you have, did you have a, um, 
you know, I, I can just envisioning some of the the dynamics. Was there was there a planned date for the retirement, or was it more of a you know that you both you guys just kind of getting tired with that dynamic, or? So I tried to retire and work out a retirement, you know, buyout for I don't know almost a year. And while I was doing that, I was kind of practicing being retired. And it might not have been a year. Mm-hmm. It might have been six months. I don't remember. And it didn't work. Like, I, we just never came to terms on the buyout. So I said, done. I'm in 100%. I'm at all the meetings. I'm taking notes, trying to keep things on process, you know, and I'm in. Mm-hmm. Helping me. And maybe I should have just took what they offered. I don't know. Because it seems like the failure of us to be able to be aligned on a buyout created hard feelings. It didn't really create hard feelings for me, but I think it did for Mina. Because I think she saw, oh, I could do this without mom. Mom will be gone. I don't have anybody second guessing me or saying stupid things. And, and she, I could just do this. I could be my own boss and I don't have to talk to anybody. That's awesome. Who doesn't want that? I want that. I don't, I'm not criticizing her for wanting that. And then she's stuck back in the same place where she has to talk to mom all the time. And that's annoying. Like, I don't want to talk to mom anymore. I don't want to have a business partner anymore. I want this to be done. So about a year after the failure, I said, okay, this is what you can buy me out for. Take it or leave it. And it kind of worked that time. I think mm-hmm. she had enough time to think about it where, and she said, you know, you're like, your number's okay, but your terms are too short. You know, I need some more time. And so we had a little bit it of negotiation. More mechanical then. Right. But it took a couple months. So I think we were both emotionally and financially at a place where, okay, now we can both do this. Super interesting, Karen. Cause like <clears throat> what I am intrigued by our dynamics is, you know, you were the parent where I was the child in our relationship, but yet I like to this day, and I can't remember if I said this to you on your, on our call, but like, there's still things that I remember I said in conference rooms. I'm like, I can't believe I said that stuff. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. But like, what I think is interesting is that like, especially like when you have a, a good relationship with your, with, you know, the, the father, son, um, mother, daughter, whatever it might be, whatever the dynamics are is your time is going and people are growing up. Right. And so like that whole dynamic of like, not only do I have my own vision of this business, but I'm becoming a different person over time and I need the room and it's no one's fault because it's a human nature process. And like, yet we're financially tied together. We're relationship tied together. We're business part, like all these things. So there's, this, it. I've just found it so intriguing when there's people that can figure that out for generations, leaving people room to grow, keeping the vision. I don't know how, it just takes so much work. It, it, and I think there's also in the businesses that succeed, there is a sense of generational respect. Mm-hmm. Um, where a lot of problems are solved because the younger generation just does what the older generation says, but it's like uh, water on a stone, very slowly, slowly, slowly saying, maybe we need to change this. Maybe we need to change mm-hmm. this. Maybe we, and they have that respect and that patience. So you want room to grow. And as your mother, I'm like, nah, you don't need to grow. <laughs> you need to stay a child. That's what you, and, <laughs> I would hope that I am more open-minded than that. And that's one of the reasons I retired was to give me no room, mm-hmm. all the room to grow. Mm-hmm. But there's this feeling as the adult that you're kind of getting pushed out and edged out mm-hmm. and marginalized and disrespected. And when you start having those feelings and then express those feelings and you're told, no, 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 you're wrong. That's worse. So having a younger generation that handles you a little bit with kid gloves, you know, mm-hmm. Um, I would like to think I'm tougher than that, but I think that can make a real difference. And the main thing is, is family is way more important than any business. It just is. Mm -hmm. If business Mm is parting, creating a conflict in a family, the business is what has to go because the family is what has to stay. So well said, Karen. And I think you're, you're, you're spot on from both sides. Like you said, both sides need to understand the dynamic in order to shuffle at the right pace forward for both people. And I think it's just so hard unless you've had like the massive debates, it's difficult to understand that. And then what makes it even, even 10 times more complicated in my mind is that, you know, let's say someone handled like their emotional path, like you and I just talked about 
then there's the financial path of like, okay, we might be fine here, but I need more money because I'm now having kids or I need to buy a house. And like, so, and you know, then you throw in estate planning and depending on everybody's family, you're going, okay, well, so you're going to buy me out, but then you're just going to give me the money anyways. What about my siblings? And then you just throw all this into a blender and it's just, you know, it's very complicated. It is complicated. And it's so crucial to be able to tease out the different aspects of what you're doing. So, and that's why different hats make such a big difference. And I think each generation needs to be very open to new ideas. So, and I think I am open to ideas, but also this sense of agreeableness, like let's find a way to be together. Let's not find a way to fight. Uh, but wait, there was something. So you're talking to someone who's old and I forget where I'm going halfway through my sentence. Um, Oh, come on. You're being, you're being too hard on yourself. <laughs> There's the mediator in you. <laughs> techniques that you can use to make these decisions and these conversations work better for each side. Um, active listening. You say, I want more money. I say, yeah, I get it. You've got these things going on in your life. You need more money. Hey, you've been heard and you've been validated. And then I say, how do you think we can do that? Because I don't see it. And then you mm -hmm. say, well, this is how I think we can do it. And I say, okay, so you think we can do it this way. I need to think about that. Like I need to process this. I need time. So I have to be very aware of my skill set and my own emotional baggage that I bring to the conversation. And I need to be gentle with you. And it, you know, what? You want more money? You don't need no money. <laughs> That's not the way to talk to people. That's not the way to talk to a business partner or someone you love. It's just not. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. communication skills are even more crucial in family businesses, I think. And creating time for family that's separate from business. Well said. And what I find interesting about our dialogue right now is that, I mean, your skill set from your <clears throat> from the uh, litigation and defense attorney and the mediation brings you a lot of tools to be able to do that. And mine was school of hard knocks, go through a lot of painful experiences and realize, don't do that, do that, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, exactly. And I think what's interesting is that these are truly, they're, they're tools. And there's like this level of education of like, hey, here's how finance works. Here's how the business works. Here are these different compartments. So there's the education foundation. And then there's the social dynamic, interpersonal dynamic. And you have to be able to, like you said, almost compartmentalize and discuss them each in different areas. But it's truly like a skill set tool set to be able to do it. Otherwise, people are going to default to their natural, you know, reptilian brains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do refer to my lizard brain all the time. And I realize that that's actually just a man's penis. <laughs> There's only enough blood for one head is what I... <laughs> It tells him what to do and he does it. And this is just a joke. I don't believe this is actually true. No, I know. Oh, it is funny. Yes. No, that's, that will, that will hopefully land, that'll land well. And especially because I, yeah, you and I've got plenty of, uh, we were, we were talking about your, your mission trip in the previous. So that was just a joke. And I think you're right is like everybody when attacked goes to that default mode. And if you don't have the tools and skill sets like you have talked about to say, okay, how are we going to process this component of it? I think it's just so difficult. And that's where like, I call it the blender versus something that like, you know, with my old employees, we'd sit down and say, okay, well, what problems are we looking to solve? And we're looking at the data and we're together trying to solve the problem instead of trying to attack each other. And I don't know if that's very similar to how the mediation works. I mean, I've been I'll tell you a trick that I did in mediation that was amazing that it worked. So I'm the neutral party. I have no decision-making authority. And I would ask uh, one party, and it's usually parents, to tell me what's going on. And I'd ask them to talk to me. And then I'd ask the school, tell me what's going on. And then I would look at the school and I'd say, can you tell that to the parent? And I'd look at the parent. And the school would naturally turn to the parent. And now... The opposing sides are having a conversation in an area that I have determined is a common interest. You two oh, agree yeah, yeah. here. So now this parent who's feeling powerless because it's school versus parent has a school saying to them, what you're saying is true. And I agree with you. And now mm -hmm. the parent feels like, oh, I can have this conversation. I can move forward and not feel uh, disempowered 
and worthless. I, I have mm-hmm. value here. The school agrees with something I say. And then you look at the parent and say, can you say this to them? And then pretty soon you're out of it. And these people, you have, I yeah. have modeled appropriate communication for them. So they learn as we're going how to talk in positive ways, use I messages. I would like blah, blah, blah. Not you are blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just <laughs> big generalizations and superlatives. Yeah. And <laughs> so let's stick with specifics because generalizations are hard to do with. Let's keep, narrow our time frames, narrow all of that. So in order to, to get to where you wanted to go, that's a lot, like everything we just talked about is hard work and emotionally draining too. So there has to be something on the other side that makes it worth it. So when you talk about retirement and in like what you wanted to do, I, I find, I'm curious as we're kind of going through the timeline here is when you, the businesses are a lot of times people's identity and you're you know, like, they're so wrapped up into their skill set, they've got their knowledge and their trade and they like to be, you know, a, the affirmation from their skill set and their, and their approval behind it. Then you throw on the fact that you were in front of TV and people are watching this. So the pressure is not just between the family harmony. It's like the perception of who you are as the world wants you to be. How were you dealing with this identity thing and what you want to do in retirement and to make all the stuff we just talked about worth it? So the G in HGTV is real and it's not for gardening. It's for G rated. And I worked as a deputy prosecutor and a defense attorney, and I prosecuted sex offenders. I defended sex offenders, murderers, robbers, all kinds of things. I am not by nature a G-rated person. (laughs) Not by nature. So uh, I have found in my retirement that I'm finding outlets for my non-G-rated personality, which is really freeing and really lovely. And they are appropriate outlets where it's private. You know, I can make mm-hmm. jokes at home. I can make jokes with right. my friends. Uh, I have a really great stand-up routine, but it's not G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that you have to be an adult. And I warn you beforehand, if you're approved, this is not the show for you. It's not. Yeah, I love uh, it. Yeah, and that's not going to be on. It's private. It's not on social media anywhere. So everybody who's there for the same thing. So I found those outlets. I have found other outlets for my creative needs that I think we have to constantly be reinventing ourselves if we want to have good, happy, valuable, satisfactory lives. So I'm going back to school because uh, for some oh, reason, really? I want Masters of Divinity. Oh, cool. Like That's I'm about, awesome. I think I'm about a third of the way through the program. Uh, I, okay, so like I just need to acknowledge the fact that you just talked about you're not a G-rated person and you have a stand-up that is not G-rated and, not, and now you're getting your master's in divinity. That's out. amazing. Jesus hung out with prostitutes, all right? <laughs> there you go. He, he judge. <laughs> and I don't know how many clients of mine found Jesus in prison because hmm. Jesus goes where the people need him to be. Clearly, I need Jesus. I mean, that's just clear. <laughs> You ever heard of the, you ever seen the the shirt? It says, I love Jesus, but I might swear a little bit. <laughs> right, right. And, and I, I really, I mean, if you're not a Jesus person, this conversation is not interesting to you at all. But I, it's a choice I made a long time ago, and it has worked for me. It is my, I've had too many experiences in my life for my faith to be shaken. And I had a friend who is a minister who an ordained minister said, you are going to have a crisis of faith while you go through divinity school. And it's funny. I had a crisis of biblical interpretation. I'm reading the Bible going, this doesn't make any sense at all, but never a crisis of faith. And that's Hmm, what gets me through. Why are you interpreting the Bible this way? This doesn't make any sense. Like God help me. Okay. I will. All right. Great. No crisis of faith. So interesting. I don't know if I told you I was a theology minor, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It's a, I was the black jelly bean in those classes. Like, I was just like, who's this guy? Quit asking why. <laughs> just, um, so, I, I, I want to go back to your comment about reinventing yourself. What allows you to do that in an effective way? Because I find a lot of people have a hard time with that. And the last part of this question is there was a book I read called Finish Big by Bo Burlingham. 
And he said, the worst question you can ask a business owner that sells their company is what do you do? They just like explode mentally because they don't know what to say. Well, I used to be this. So I think it's such that it's a really interesting psychological problem that I love unpacking because of how integrated people are with their identity in their company. So I have developed an answer for that question that's very complicated. What do I do? I am an independent artist who does real estate development, construction, and design. That's my answer to that. That's what I am. And that comes from redefining myself. I'm not a partner in a business anymore. I'm this new separate independent entity. And what is that? And I think the way a person gets there, you know, when you're going through that next phase in life, you're retiring, you're my age, you just have to think about it. You just have to think about what brings me joy in life. And of course you have to think about the financial aspect. Can I pay my mortgage? Can I buy my groceries? All those things. Mm-hmm. Once you mm-hmm. have figured that out, you have your retirement financials in place, then who are you? Who are you? And just I think so- that answer, that question, that answer, that question, Karen, freaks people out. So they do almost unbelievably irrational things to avoid answering that question. It's so crazy to me because that's that's the basis for everything I do. Who am I? I I would like to think that I'm kind. That's what I would like to think, that that's where I start every day. So I have this little shop and it's open random hours and people come in and my husband sees what happens in there. And he, sell, he tells them, if you want to talk to her, you have to buy something. <laughs> I don't have that approach. I'm just nice. You want to come in and chat with mm-hmm. me? All right, I'll chat with you. I'll be nice because this is something you need in your day. I will be kind. What else am I? I am creative. In every realm you can imagine, my brain just does what it wants to do. And I just try to catch up with it and get one little piece (laughs) and go, okay, I can do that. Like, this is just the way it works, constant. And I think our fear of doing it is worse than actually doing it. Like, we're so Mm -hmm. afraid, what's going to happen when I sit down and think of this? I got to keep myself busy so I don't think about it. No, you are creating misery to avoid this pain that you fear. I had a therapist once who said, I'm going to put you right into your pain. Because figuring out who you are when you're starting a new aspect of your life can be a painful journey. It can also be remarkably transformative and freeing. And you don't know until you... If you let yourself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's a... Uh, it's uh, There's interesting... Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Hire someone if you can't do it yourself. And there, there's a book called uh, Think Again by Adam Grant that just came out uh, fairly recently. And uh, along the lines of what you're talking about, he said, instead of... P- a lot of the conflict today is related to this too, is that be instead of being tying your identity to your opinions or the physical things around you, time to your values, and then you're open. And then it's not this like destructive nature of your ego trying to protect the consistency of who you are. You're because you're saying I'm curious or I learn or whatever it is. I mean, it's an interesting. Exactly. Or uh, my, my, I'm easily entertained. <laughs> 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 I, the, I value that. I also, my superpower is bad smells don't bother me. I, I don't know what bad that smells. is. Yeah. The m- most foul spell in the world. I can walk in there, live with it, not be bothered by it. And people are amazed by that. But yeah, there's a skill set. And we all. <laughs> there's a skill set. I love it. <laughs> but that's, that's a bizarre skill set, right? But we yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, like, I'm trying to think of what you could apply it to, but. <laughs> really well on TV when you got to get rid of a poopy toilet. I was going to say that. Yeah, that's definitely some. But so we have things that we value. We have long-term personality characters that make up who we are. Like some people are more outgoing. Some people are more introverted. So figure those things, those things about yourself. And do what I want to work on shifting this a little bit. Like in the past, I have valued financial remuneration. I'm at a point now where I want to change that. And then, you know, just so it's, it's, it's beautiful. There's a, there was a woman that I interviewed Gail Golden and she talked about life is a, uh, oh my gosh. It's so in museums, you have the, what's the, like the, the theme I'm totally mind blank right now. Um, you're curating different themes. So like you can't have everything. So what you're just talking about, do you have different stages that you're solving for? So what are you solving for now that you are in this new stage? What are you doing? How you, how are you enjoying yourself? And 
having fun. Well, my my natural default energy level is super hyper. I don't sit still <laughs> very well. Um, my husband is a much calmer person, which is a good balance for me because he can he can help me to just sit and relax, which is lovely and I appreciate it. Uh, so I'm channeling that natural energy level. I got a little shop. I fix up lamps that I found or chairs or tables or whatever. I fix them up. I sell them in the shop and that keeps me out of trouble. And I like alone time. Like I am a very peculiar, gregarious introvert. I can chat, 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 chat. But if I need to chat some more, I need to go be by myself. I need to refuel and be by myself. And my husband tolerates that. Um, We're doing a lot of traveling, which we both love to do. Uh, we've started a new routine. We read the Sunday paper in bed together, which is lovely. Just sitting in bed, going nowhere, reading the Sunday paper. Let's do that. That seems like a good thing to do. Um, just some from those very small things, which are ways of enjoying one another's company in a way that works mm-hmm. for both of us, to making sure that we both have the time we need to self-actualize in a way that we like. So I was, I don't know where I was, and my husband sent me pictures of him fishing in the White River. I would love to go fishing with him, but I can't go today. So I'm doing the thing I need to do, and he's fishing, because we're both grown and we can manage that. Um, what else? That's so that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, and I'm, I'm just, uh, I've, I've so much enjoyed this conversation because of just, I mean, how self-aware you are, and you just, it's a journey, and you're just so willing to share, and I just love it. <laughs> I love it. Because, right, it. That's, I know we say that as a truism, that life is a journey, but let's say it like we mean it. And let's mm-hmm. make every step of the path worthwhile and interesting and uplifting and beautiful. And there's so much pain in life and life is unfair. Like that's just the default. Bad things happen. That is a baseline. Everybody's going to agree with that, right? <laughs> but we can be fair to each other. And we can be kind to each other and we can be patient with each other. Even when life, like my mom has Alzheimer's, totally not fair. Not fair. Not fair at all. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to enjoy her anyway. When she doesn't know who I am and she's telling me a story about Karen, which is who I am, and what a jerk Karen's being, I agree with her. I say, yeah, that Karen, (laughs) what are you going to do with her? Yeah. <laughs> she says, I think I'm going to find her. I said, do you think that's going to work? She's a pretty hard case. Like, just jump in. And whatever moment she's in, I'm in it with her. Because telling her, that's that's awesome. Awesome. I'm Karen, doesn't help her. Because that's just confusing. Yeah, well, yeah it is. One, well, and, and I think you said, I think you, you're, I'm spot, you're spot on. And then one thing I would add is being fair to yourself. <clears throat> and understanding that you're, you know, you got to give yourself some grace too, because all of this stuff can be very, very hard and you can't give anything to anybody else if you if you can't give it to yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. I, it's, I know other people who have parents with Alzheimer's will resonate with this statement, but it's as though I'm already grieving my mother's death while she's still alive. Because what we have with our family is this memory of our past and the future that we plan. That's mm-hmm. everything we have. We have the moment we're in and that whole past and that whole future. And my mother only has the moment and sometimes not even that. And it's so it's like she's Mm. gone, but she's still there and she's still adorable. She's just adorable. And she's so nice. And I just, I miss her. I miss her. And that takes a lot of time to process. Like I need to, I need, and you got to find the time for that stuff. Everybody has to, it doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, the emotional things in your life will take time well, and I think you just—it's just about being, being present and being aware of what's going on, and also acknowledging the past and the future. And so, this has been unbelievably fun. And I want to wrap up with just two final questions. So, I—I I ask everybody what the word intentional means to them because it's the name of the show, and I think there's so much meaning behind it. And I love hearing everybody else's answers. Um, so, what does the word intentional mean for you? Uh, a one word answer for me would be thoughtful. Like I've, I've thought this through. I know what this whole thing means. I know where it came from. I know where I want it to go. And I am doing this with purpose. This, is, this isn't just, 
and my life is very unintentional. <laughs> Everything just seems to happen randomly. But then when the thing happens and it's there, what do I do with this now? Where do I go with this? That's when it becomes intentional. Like the universe opens the door of a ride, I get in. Now staying in is intentional. I love it. I love it. So then the last question is, if people want to follow you, I know you're saying you're getting a little bit more private, but if they wanted to reach out to you, what's the best place? I have a TikTok channel now where I'm a little uh, less G-rated. Like I'm a little less agreeable and I can't <laughs> say what I want to say. So if you want to see the unvarnished, well, I'm still a little varnished. All right. Cause I still got the show and I got to be a little careful, but on TikTok, I am Karen. What am I? At? Ah, I think it's Karen Elaine on YouTube. It's definitely. On YouTube, it's Karen Elaine, and okay. YouTube is kind of how tos. And we'll we'll get we'll get the we'll get it in the show notes. Okay, and uh, Instagram is Karen Elaine, Facebook is Mama Chick, and Twitter is Mama Chick One because there was already Mama Chick. Karen, I love it. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for spending an hour with me. Thank you for having me. It has been delightful. I had an absolute blast interviewing Karen. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If there's one big takeaway that I have is that I am absolutely a believer that the more educated the parties are in a conversation about the different tools of valuations and roles and responsibilities, we have more tools to communicate with. I just think that there's so many people that struggle with conflict and they're trying to trying to like really understand all the different roles that they are playing, whether it's father, son, mother, daughter, business partner, mentor, mentee, you know, coworkers. I mean, just so many different things. And then in Karen's case, co-stars on a TV show, the more we understand the tools that are at play, the better we can sit down and talk about what we're trying to accomplish and use the resources of the education and the tools that we have in order to discuss with the other human being that we're sitting across from, how, how what we're both trying to accomplish is related to timelines, to financials, to de our desire for the role and visions, all that stuff, which is why I really think you should, if that hits home, you should really check out the, the intentional growth training, go to arcona.io. That's what it really unlocks the toolkit in order to have these discussions. So that way you have the highest probability of clarifying that path to a more valuable business and making your dreams and vision come true without all the conflict and all the wake of disasters that I think a lot of people end up having because they don't know how to have these conversations or really what's at stake or the ripple effect of their decision. So thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will see you next week.